Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. My question is to all you members. How does it feel to have incredible mental abilities? Do you feel it fuels your level of happiness? Is there ever a moment where one feels without purpose or meaning? Or is it always purpose-filled days with a never-ending list of things one wants to do? I feel like I can overtake people if I tried with just 40% of my willpower. And I feel so bad for that. Is an IQ of 111 enough to get a PhD? My therapist tricked me into taking a test and it hurts to know I'm average. Sorry about the dodgy accents. Those were all posts, genuine posts, from an online group built around Mensa, the Society for People with High IQs. And it makes me think of a couple of things. First, thank God I'm not clever. And second, how strange is it that people feel so defined by their IQ scores? Where did this weird, possibly very unhelpful thing, the IQ test, come from? Hello and welcome to another episode of Patented, a podcast all about the history of inventions. I'm your host, Dallas Campbell. Thank you for your company. My guest today is an historian. It's John Carson from the University of Michigan, and he is the author of the book, The Measure of Merit, Talents, Intelligence and Inequality in the French and American Republics. Hope you enjoy the episode, whatever your IQ is. Hey, John, welcome to the show. It's lovely to have you with us. I've got a really weird, irrational fear of IQ tests. I guess maybe I have a low IQ or something, or I'm feeble-minded or whatever. The, but I just remember as a kid having to do them at school, there were certain things I could do and certain things I was just really bad at, verbal reasoning or something I just could never do. Gosh, it's such an interesting subject. This I realised as I was reading about it earlier on, it gets us into all kinds of interesting bits of history and sort of philosophy as well. Like, can we sum people up? By a single score. All this kind of stuff is really, really interesting. I'm just trying to work out what the best place to dive in, really. Where should we even start? I kind of think, actually, you know where we should start? 
Why are we so obsessed by measuring ourselves? Where did that come from? And then we'll get on to the history of the IQ test in a minute. But maybe you could take us back to the beginning. Sure. I will say that I love taking those kind of IQ tests because did you? they were tests I didn't have to study for. I thought any test I didn't have to study for, I was happy to take. But you didn't have to study, but they, <laughs> well, no, you're absolutely right. But I had that just really nagging sensation that I was going to be bad at it and I would be bad at it. And then I would be labeled forever. I'm going to have this stupid number above my head that's going to make me look like an imbecile. No, there's a lot of evidence, right, that at least with certain groups and probably with individuals too, if you're told you're taking an IQ test, you score more poorly than if you're not told it's an IQ test. Yes. So there's a real problem with the cultural meaning of IQ and what it does to people's anxieties. Well, that's what I mean. Surely they're full of sort of ambiguities like that and full of biases and other things that the IQ test doesn't take into consideration. Yeah, I think absolutely. Yeah. Because presumably you could be a genius at one thing. Right. And not good at... I'm not a genius at anything. But then like really... Well, obviously you're very good at what you do. <laughs> well, no, I'm not. As you can see, as I'm really pretty average at what I do. Anyway. I mean, there are many stories you could tell. I tell one that starts way back in the Enlightenment in the 18th century. The Enlightenment's always a good place to start. It's always a good place for the modern West. It always ends up with the Enlightenment, right? Presumably, we've always been interested in some way, human reasoning and intelligence and that kind of stuff. Yes, in human reasoning, yeah. But it's harder to find evidence that people were very obsessed with how relatively smart someone is compared to somebody else before the 19th century. Right. Well, let's go back to the Enlightenment then. So going back there, there were obviously people really interested in how the mind operates and what kind of reasoning people have. But in a world where hereditary class was so powerful, why would you need this measure? You didn't want to find out, say, that a noble was an idiot. <laughs> That's interesting. So the idea of intelligence then, it was based on hereditary, like if you were from a high status family in the Enlightenment, you were deemed to be intelligent. No, it was more you wouldn't want to talk about that kind of thing. And in fact, one of the great Republican figures in the 18th century, Thomas Paine, right, his argument against hereditary aristocracy is precisely because you can't be sure that you're not going to have someone of very limited intelligence, and of course he had much more colorful language, becoming like the next king. The problem with hereditary monarchy is that it wasn't based on merit. It was just based on whatever blithering idiot happened to be next in line, which England has some history of understanding, I believe. Well, that's... <laughs> that's I, I was going to say we should gloss over that, but there wasn't an idea. Merit didn't really come into it. There were ideas of merit in the aristocratic world because people were trying to move up into the class. And there's all kinds of stories of systems that try to develop merit. But as long as a hereditary aristocracy plays a powerful role, it was always going to be limited. And in a funny way, the language of intelligence is, at least as I tell it, as I see it, is born out of these kind of Republican anti-aristocratic sentiments. So a political thing. In part, yeah. Both Jefferson and the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen in France proclaimed the equality of all people. As much as that was empty air, it still had meaning. And so intelligence is one of these things that comes along because really no people were scared of a notion of actual radical equality. And so looking for some way to reestablish difference, to say, well, you know, but some people still are better than others. But now merit becomes one of the ways in which you can say, well, this person is a better carpenter, a better politician, a smarter person, so we can trust them to rule. And that's my story of how this stuff comes to be. 
it's really interesting. So the 18th century, there does seem to be this sort of hierarchy that develops of divine beings down to amoeba. And then human beings are somewhere in the middle. Is that fair? Is that right? Yes. I mean, it's called the great chain of being. It's an old idea. It's not the cutting edge of science, but it becomes in a way revitalized during the 18th century. And it's this vision that there's a scale that goes everywhere from the angels through humans down to amoeba. But one of the things that happens with certain naturalists during the latter part of the 18th century is that they begin to place various kinds of humans on that scale. In the 18th century, one of the great scientific projects is classification. Think Linnaeus. He's not the only one, but he's certainly the most famous. The Linnaean classification system tries to encompass everything. And it does create a number of different human groups. Now, Linnaean classification is not hierarchical. It doesn't say one is better than the other. It just says there's the Europeans and Asian peoples. I mean, they use different terms and they characterize them. Yes. It's this idea of human beings desperately wanting to make sense of things. And if you can do it on a graph somehow or a Venn diagram or a sliding scale, then it's a way of conceptualizing the natural world, I suppose. What did this scale tell us about human intelligence? So within this scale, we've got different kinds of humans, which of course is going to raise alarm bells for us here in the 21st century. Just tell us what those categories were and why they came to be. Sure. Going back to our friend Linnaeus for a moment, I mean, he creates this very elaborate taxonomy. There's no better and worse. It's just this huge thing, but he does have different groups. But there are others at the same time who begin to take those human groups and place them in a rank order. And we won't be surprised at what that rank order ends up. White Europeans at the top, closest to the angels. Then it depends a little bit where you put groups, but maybe Asiatic peoples, native peoples, and then always African peoples right next to the higher apes, typically the orangutans. And then there is this naturalist work in the late 18th and early 19th century that wonders whether orangutans and African peoples are you know, related, can they produce offspring if they mate? I mean, there are these really horrible things that are going on, but it's all about creating a very clear hierarchy that has value and that places people at a very particular level. So you've given us this wonderful context and we've suddenly exploded into this desire to classify. And of course, while we're talking about that, when I think of things like intelligence tests and the IQ test, just from my history, I always think of Francis Galton and eugenics. So maybe we can segue from that to that. Sure. Let me do a quick intermediate and then to get to Galton. I mean, one of the things about God is that one of the ways of understanding him was that all knowing, all thinking, all reasoning. So reason or even the word intelligence comes to be used as the way of distinguishing these various groups, that white Europeans have more intelligence than Asian peoples. And then after that, at the bottom of that ranking are African peoples. And then during the 19th century, there are various attempts to find physical correlates. And it's the explosion of physical anthropometry and particularly various ways of measuring brains, skulls, and heads, all of which are kind of looking to show that there's a physical meaning to this. And so this backstory is what goes on in the first half of the 19th century in a number of places. Can you explain physical anthro... I don't even know, not anthropology. Anthropometry. Anthropometry. And this is, is this the measuring of skulls the bigger the skull, the more brain. Yes, in a simple way it is. Anthropometry really is the measuring of any human characteristic. Right. But the interest is very particularly in the skull and head. It can become brains at some point when they can try to limit it, when they realize the skull stuff doesn't work. 
but it's various attempts to think about, is there a correlation between some aspect of our being and in this case, particularly around our smartness? And of course, the head becomes the particular place to look because it's presumed to be the place where brains lie. I want to go back politically. I want to talk about Francis Galton. Yes. You were taking us on a little journey. And we were just getting the Galton. So eugenics, Francis Galton, why is he so connected to the idea of the IQ test? Well, that's a great question because he doesn't invent the IQ test. I was told he did. I always thought he did. Many people think he did, but he did not invent the IQ test. Tell us who he is. Tell us who, for those who don't know who Francis Galton is. Sure. Francis Galton was one of the great Victorian scientists in the sense of great of being representative. He was interested in all kinds of things. He was a dabbler. He went to Cambridge. He was really interested in mathematics. But he has a basic a nervous breakdown and can't really do the main exam. I forget if he does it. And I sympathize with that. I've been there. Okay, anyway. <laughs> he was obsessed with counting, with numbers. They say, you know, he would sit in a meeting and watch how many people fidgeted and make counts of them. I mean, the guy was a kind of nut job in that wonderful Victorian eccentric way, except many of his views are things we would find somewhat abhorrent. I want to know why Francis Galton is always credited for inventing the IQ test. I mean, he popularizes the notion, I think, of natural ability. And he also does this big anthropometric laboratory in Kensington where he invites thousands of people to come and get their various parts of their heads and bodies measured. And once try to find if there are correlations, he invents correlation, the mathematics of correlation, if there are correlations between that and their mental abilities. But anthropometry doesn't really pan out as a kind of way of measuring, even doing cranial measurements. There are lots of really smart people with relatively small skulls, and there are some not so smart people with pretty big skulls, and the differences end up being tinier and tinier, the better they're at measuring. So the whole project kind of falls apart. Didn't they take Einstein's brain out and weigh it and stuff to try and... Did I just make that up? Is that an urban myth? Yeah, well, they took it out and then I guess they weighed it, they cut it up. There's this great story of someone who has and starts driving around America with some slice of Einstein's brain. <laughs> right. There's a podcast for you. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, there have been these obsessions with the size of brain for a long time and they continue. But the data, when you look at it, even for a lot of the scientists by the early 20th century, and this brings in another key figure, Alfred Binet, who really is the founder of the modern IQ test. I mean, he does craniometric work. He does skull measurements and tries to see if there are differences between sizes of skull and abilities are. But like everyone else, the numbers get smaller and smaller. And so it becomes really implausible that some tiny difference in volume is going to mean a lot. We try to bring you cold, hard facts on Gone Medieval, but January is all about mysteries, impossible riddles from medieval history that defy efforts to solve them. How did the presence of a mysterious saviour from the East turn into devastation? What secrets does a book written in an unknown code hide? Did kings and princes really die when history has assumed they did? I'm Matt Lewis, and in January, we'll see how close we can get to answering the unanswerable and ask how these mysteries might be solved in the future. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So the IQ test. So first of all, the IQ. What does IQ stand for? Where did it come from? Intelligence quotient. And it comes from Germany. Oh, okay. Basically, this is a story that has France, England, America, and Germany as really key players in various ways. Okay. For a change. <laughs> For a change. Okay. So Germany, America, England, France. You mentioned a French name. Yes. Alfred Binet. Binet. Tell us about Binet. Sure. Binet was this, and from a mildly aristocratic family, the French educational system is incredibly meritocratic and incredibly hierarchical. So he goes to one of the leading lycées, these kind of just before universities. And then in the late 19th, early 20th century, the kind of career path for someone interested in the mind and the brain is not clear. So he goes into medicine a bit, but he's really interested in something called psychology, which doesn't exactly exist as a field. And so he, like a number of others, end up gathering around a famous neurologist in France and work in their laboratories and begin to kind of look at how can we understand the brain and the mind. And eventually Binet becomes an assistant in a psychological laboratory that's connected to the Sorbonne. And then eventually the leader of that leaves and then Binet takes it over and that's his home base for the next 15 years until he dies. So Alfred Binet is this figure who is interested in a whole range of ways of trying to understand the human mind and how it operates. But one of the things he does is he does his own craniometric work and has the same problems with everybody else that, yeah, there might be some very tiny relevance between how good you're doing in school or whatever and the size of your head, but it's really too small to pay much attention to. And he also does an analysis of his two daughters. And there, what's fascinating is that by doing a bunch of different kinds of tests, experiments with them, decides that they have two different kinds of intelligences. You know, it's not about being smart and not smart. It's that one is more this way and the other is a little more this way. One's more artistic, one's more, I forget what term he uses at the moment, but they're just different kinds of intelligence. So this is a person who's doing a form of intelligence analysis that comes to really different kinds of results. It's not ranking his daughters and saying one is smarter than the other. It's saying there are different kinds of brains that do different kinds of things and have different kinds of strengths and weaknesses. Was he really the pioneer of understanding the amorphous nature of intelligence? There are a number of people who are also looking at people with extraordinary talents and trying to understand them and coming to some sense that the brain might be understood as a set of abilities that are loosely related but aren't all the same thing. So he's not alone, but he is an important part. But it ends up, he ends up becoming more famous, at least outside of France, for what happens next, which is that he is invited to be part of a ministerial commission from the French education ministry to think about the problem of kids who are doing poorly in school. And some are struggling because they've been sick and missed a lot of school or, you know, they can't hear very well and they're sitting at the back of the class because the rigid French system is the more poorly you do in class, the further back you're pushed. I had that at my school. We had a rank ordering in my class and there would be tests done. And if you did well, you sat there. And if you did badly, you sat there. And I always sat there because I was always bottom. And it was terrible. I always had this terrible sense of shame and guilt. And anyway. It's also just completely pedagogically a mistake, right? That people who are struggling should be up front, not in the back. Yeah, exactly. 
And so Binet was interested in those that he thought were struggling because of intellectual problems, deficits, right? They were not as capable as some of the others. But the question was, how do you identify them? How do you distinguish them from all the others? And so he develops the earliest version of the test with a compatriot, Theodore Simon, in 1905, called the Benet-Simon Intelligence Scale. And what he did was using a bunch of different things, you know, can you identify what's missing from this picture? Can you identify three differences between a president and a king? I mean, at the highest level. But he comes up with these set of questions, and then he gives them to a bunch of what he takes to be normal or random Parisian school children and sees how they do and compares their chronological age, where they end with how they perform and uses this to create a series of ladders. This is what a four-year-old can do. This is what a five-year-old can do. This is what a six-year-old can do. So that idea of your IQ score, like what's your IQ when people say, well, Einstein has an IQ of 200 or whatever. It's your chronological age divided by your mental age, which is determined by this psychometric test, multiplied by 100? No. As far as I know. Have I got that wrong? You've got it upside down. Upside down. This is why I was, I was bad at maths, you see. <laughs> <laughs> mental age divided by chronological age That's the one. times 100. And it comes actually from a German, William Stern, who suggests that if you divide the mental age by the chronological age, it might give you a kind of stable measure of something like intelligence, but he doesn't do much more than that. And that actually is taken up not by Binet, not by Galton and Pearson, but by a fourth player in the story, which is Lewis Terman in America, when he's developing a kind of new version of the test that Binet and Simon create called the Stanford Binet. And when he does that, he introduces IQ as a measure and multiplies it times 100 and argues that it gives you a constant score. So you can have a number that doesn't change with age. Now, what's weird about that, right, is that we all know people's brains and their understanding and their mentality grows as they get older, especially when they're kids, right? And changes, presumably. And changes. But this tries to erase all of that. So it's as if intelligence has never grown and never changed. I want to come onto that in a moment, but just along our timeline story. So we got this test originated in French schools, but then it gets politicized. It gets taken by the military, doesn't it? So we're getting into the First World War. Countries like France and Germany want to use this test as a way of ranking military soldiers, and presumably in America as well. Yeah, except that Binet, one, begins with this sense that it's just really about identifying what there's called the feeble-minded, those of lower intelligence, and then becomes more expansionist in what he thinks it can do, that it can also identify the superior and all kinds of things. During World War I, he tries to sell this idea to the French military, but they're not very interested. Why? Because the French military, I think like the German military, already has universal conscription. People have had to enter the military and do a certain amount of military training for a long time within the history of the French nation. And so there's no much reason for it. They already know who's a good soldier and who isn't. They're fighting these massive land campaigns. They've got a huge military to begin with. And so the test isn't going to tell them anything that they really want to know. So it goes nowhere. And I suspect if the Germans were interested, it would have been a similar story. They already have a big military. They don't need this. Where it takes up is in the United States. The Binet test comes into America in the 1910s, and American psychologists get really excited about it, a bunch of them. It's a way to do very empirical work. It seems very scientific. Psychology is a new discipline that's really just 
beginning to happen. And America is open to it in part because many other scientific disciplines are already dominated by the French, the Germans and the English. But psychology is kind of an open game. So there's a lot of investment in it. It's seen as connecting with older visions of building intellectual culture. And so there are a lot of people who are playing and doing, working with it, including this guy named Louis Terman, who just before the war creates what's called the Stanford Binet, this very statistically strong test that for the job of measuring students or measuring school children is very powerful. It seems on better grounds than almost any other test, certainly in America. Is that connected to the SAT? Like when I think about America and those sorts of tests, I think of the SAT test that I know American students have to take. Does its legacy? Yes, it's not directly connected, but yes, the SAT is kind of a version of this. Now, the difference is that all these tests before World War I are all individually administered. A psychologist or someone like that has to talk to a person one-on-one and marks down their scores and then comes up with that finding. But during World War I, a bunch of psychologists led by a Harvard one, Yerkes, but including Terman and a number of the other main testers, manages to sell to the American military the idea of doing intelligence testing of its new recruits. Why does the American military interested? Because before World War II, or the end of World War II, America doesn't have a big standing army. The U.S. doesn't believe in standing armies. So the American military, just before World War I, there are 60,000 people, which, you know, by the standards of the European militaries is inconsequential. So they have to expand really fast. And in the course of two or three years, they go from 60,000 to 1.75 million. Wow. Goodness me. Yes. So it's just two orders of magnitude more. So they're desperate. They need tons of new officers because West Point and the Naval Academies can't possibly supply enough. They need tons of new soldiers and they don't know what to do with them all. So they're desperate to have any kind of structure or any kind of mechanism that might help them sort out who's good and who's not, who can be this and who can be that. And so they're open to the experiment of, oh, let's let in a bunch of pointy head psychologists, see what they can do. And so the psychologists come in, but they realize they can't do individual tests of what will be millions of people, right? So they invent the multiple choice test. They don't exactly invent it. It's already around, but they use that method and make it the dominant strain. And from World War I on, that's really the birth of the multiple choice test is something that people know about and take constantly. I used to love the multiple choice at school because I was like, thank God, it's multiple guess, we used to call it. And you could just, I have no idea. Good straight down the middle. <laughs> it was a sort of always a bit of a callback. But I read somewhere about, didn't they discover like the average mental age of the American soldier was 13 or something terrible? And it was just really discredited. Exactly. Well, it wasn't discredited. That's the thing, right? So they do this huge test and they end up testing 1.75 million soldiers. And it's still not exactly clear why the military expanded as much as it did. Some commanders really thought the tests were valuable, some didn't. But the tests are used by a number of them to kind of balance out squads so that they won't be all stupid people or whatever, however they imagined it. So as the war ends, there's this immense database. I mean, no one has ever done testing at this scale of one test on so many people. And while there are lots of questions of how reliable the test is and how valid it is, especially for immigrants who barely spoke English, for African-Americans and others coming from really terrible school systems, nonetheless, there's this huge pile of data. 
And one of the findings that explodes in the American public right as the war is ending is that the average mental age of an American soldier, of American male, is presumed to be 13, which means a significant number of them are at 12 or under, and 12 marks the beginning of subnormal intelligence. And this just causes an explosion. But the explosion isn't these tests must be wrong. There are some people who argue that, but for many people, they're taken as this is science and this demonstrates that in fact, the biological vigor of the nation is in peril, that there are real worries about what's going to happen to the country. Well, we touch on all kinds of politics and moral issues, but let's talk about now. Let's talk about the legacy of these tests. Where are we now? Because companies make you do psychometric tests. You know, if you're training to be an astronaut, you have to do psychometric tests. So presumably they are good and they must work. They must be able to tell you something. What is the legacy of them? How useful are they? That's a great and a really hard question. And of course, there's tons of debate. And I don't think there's an easy answer. You could probably say that as methods of diagnosis, they might have some value, right? If someone is not doing well, you give them a test and they're not doing well on it. Well, all right, is there a problem? And maybe it's a mental problem. Maybe it's some little thing, you know, but it begins to open up a question you can then explore more thoroughly. I think many people would say that you have to be really aware of how the cultural, if not biases, at least the cultural meanings of this are very different for different people. And so to kind of routinely just rely on them is deeply problematic. That's interesting. I mean, presumably if you're looking for a very, very specific set of criteria, for example, you're looking for astronauts who have to do a very specific job, then they might be useful because you can actually see quite clearly that they, okay, they have mechanically minded people. Yeah, maybe. But even there, I mean, one of the tensions within intelligence testing and its various forms is that let's say someone has really high mechanical ability, some astronaut, but just middle agility ability to kind of hit buttons and someone else is the reverse. Who's the better choice, right? I mean, when you have more than one criterion, then choice becomes hard. And my argument is that these have become powerful because people are looking for some mechanism to have a decision system that they can then say is objective and is reliable. That's really interesting. I think that is very profound. It's a way of kind of passing the buck, isn't it? It's like, well, we've hired this person. They did well on the IQ test. Not my fault. They then turned out to be terrible. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Or if you've got 5,000 people you're choosing among, it's some way of making a decision, right? And if you begin to say multiple things, like if you go back to this notion that there might be multiple kinds of intelligence, well, all right, well, if someone is good in this and middle in that and bad in that, but really great over here, I mean, how do you compare an entire thing? This is why the pressure always ends up coming back to looking for a single number, even though lots of people know that single number is losing much more than it's gaining. It's not a very good way of understanding an individual. Culturally, we do seem to be changing, I think. I mean, I sense that the way that people think in general intelligence and people thinking differently is becoming much more accepted and talked about than it ever used to be. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think obviously there's a lot of skepticism about intelligence tests, the kind of gender to a certain degree and racial to a huge degree or ethno-racial ways in which they've affected groups differently is by now very well known. And there are lots of bad things that have happened as a result of those, although often they pick up on prejudices that were already longstanding. But I think one of the issues is if you have a heterogeneous society or heterogeneous culture, and let's say you're an institution that wants to draw people from all over, say, America. And you want to compare people who went through the California educational system or the 
San Diego educational system, with one in Seattle, with one in a small town in Iowa, with one in a rural part of Alabama. Those educational systems are all different. How do you find any way of equating how these people performed? And something like an intelligence test, a national thing you think you can give to everyone, continues to kind of slip back in, I think, as, well, you need some way of comparing things that are not very comparable. And this is one way of doing it. Now, there are lots of pushes against that, but I think there's always this counter pressure for this sense of choosing out of a broad group, looking for something that seems objective to get you out of the bind of having to make the decision yourself, not seeming like it's based just on who you know. And often these are a stand-in for that, but they try to get around some of that. I think it's a harder thing to get rid of than people imagine. John, it's been absolutely fantastic to talk to you. This is one of these subjects. It's quite hard to talk about because it's so massive. And of course, it gets you into all kinds of interesting political history and moral questions and philosophy and science and, and everything else. But you have steered us through this path absolutely beautifully. And I want to say a huge thank you for coming onto the show. Who do we give the credit to? Are we going to give it to the French, the invention of the IQ test, France? Do we like that? The modern IQ test is... French and Binet. Binet, there we go. Making it something that people take is the Americans and really the First World War. That turns it into this huge political thing that never goes away. Humans are messy. They are. That's always the takeaway thing at all of these conversations I have. Humans are messy. John, thank you very much for coming on the show. Oh, well, thank you. It's a real pleasure. Okay, thank you very much to John Carson for joining me on the show. Thank you very much for listening. Hope that was enlightening. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, If you did, don't forget to tell your friends and your family and your family's tennis partners and your family's tennis partners, pets, etc, etc. And also don't forget to get in touch if you've got a suggestion for a topic or an idea uh, you'd like me to cover. We love hearing your suggestions and we love doing episodes based on your suggestions. So get in touch. You can email us at our brand new email address, patented at historyhit.com, or you can DM me on Twitter or Instagram or whatever, or you can stop me in the street. If you bump into me in the streets, tap me on the shoulder and uh, let me know your thoughts. Thanks for your company. See you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Volk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code patented at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.